Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good start to your week so far, and hard to believe that we're almost um, towards the end of October. Where does the time go? I always ask myself as a new week begins that's that question, but it, I never seem to have the answer. But all I know is that uh, the busy we all stay, the faster the time goes. I don't know if that's good or bad, but... We just have to make the most of the time that we do have each day. Well, here we are on another session of Founding Rivals, Madison versus Monroe, the Bill of Rights, and the election that saved a nation. You know, um, James Madison and James Monroe really didn't miss out on anything. I mean, here they are in the 1770s leading up to 1776. Um, Madison is in his mid-20s. James Monroe is not even 20 years old, but he's about um, almost 18 years of age leading up to 1776. But the bottom line is is that neither one of these two individuals um, are missing out on anything. Uh, But we must remember, too, that um, when a child made it past the age of 10, they were considered an adult back then, so... By the time um, an individual has reached the age of 15, in the case of James Monroe, he is getting ready to go off to college. That's if you know his family can afford to send him. And thank heavens that his uncle was able to step in and make a huge difference in his life, his uncle being Joseph Jones, who was um, kind enough to um, see to it that his um, education was further enhanced by going to the College of William & Mary. So... A lot is going on in uh, around the time of 1776. Not that there wasn't anything going on before then, but the 1770s have obviously proven to be a time of, um, of uh, what do you call it, um, not so much turmoil, but a time of um, unexpected um, circumstances that have um, either made or break um, relations between the colonies and the mother country being England. So in Virginia, going into um, 1776, just a few months, I should say, before um, the big um, event being the Declaration of Independence would become finally approved, something else is going on in Virginia. Around um, May of uh, 1776, I'm going to say, That is when um, the uh, 5th Virginia Convention is established. And why have there been so many um, conventions established? Well, you have to remember, too, we're wondering why didn't everything get right the first go-around. Well, we have to remember, folks, circumstances change. I don't think that the delegates who have attended um, these various Virginia conventions ever assumed that everything would would be resolved the first go-around. For many of them, they really wanted to believe that some kind of reconciliation could be made with England to even avoid going to war or let alone um, declare full separation. After all, that was the objective from the First Continental Congress uh, when they... Um, when they um, ended their uh, session 
in uh, October of 1774, or September rather, I should say, September of 1774. Their objective was to meet um, eight to nine months later with the hopes that um, reconciliation could have been achieved. After all, they did address what was called that Olive Petition Branch Letter to the King and Parliament listing um, various grievances in the hopes that Parliament and the Crown would wake up and realize that, hey, maybe we have been treating our subjects in North America um, with, uh, with, inconsider- with inconsideration. You know, maybe we've been too harsh on them. I wish I could say that they realized that that was um, that, that they were right and how they uh, had not treated us properly, but unfortunately, many of them did not see it that way, especially George III. So, when this fifth and final Virginia Convention is established, how many uh, delegates made up this uh, body? Uh, the answer is 126, and it turns out that 50 of these delegates, or let alone 50 of the 126 delegates, had not served in any of the previous four gatherings. And it turns out that James Madison would be one of those 50 new delegates. So, is it fair to say that having new delegates aboard is a good thing? Absolutely. New delegates can mean uh, new ideas. Uh, a new way of uh, perhaps reinventing, um, what do you call it, ways of thinking that had not been uh, seen beforehand. Of course, there are questions as well that, hey, what are these new delegates going to bring that could um, challenge the existing status quos? So what is James Madison going to bring? I think that's an interesting question right there. But before we find out, that answer, we ought to know something here. Who became chairman of the fifth and final Virginia Convention? The answer is Edmund Pendleton. He previously held duties ranging from overseeing Virginia's military mobilization to heading up the Committee of Public Safety. Edmund Pendleton is a very um, distinguished individual who um, who is very well known um, not just throughout Williamsburg, but in other areas of um, Virginia, where um, his name has just um, been made to where people can identify with him. After all, the Pendle—if you're a Pendleton or a Randolph—you've uh, got um, some very strong um, social standing in Virginia. So here's a true or false question for you all. Um, Did Virginia become the first colony to declare uh, independence? Yes. Well, um, how so? Well, all the delegates, including uh, Madison himself, voted unanimously to, in giving, um, they voted unanimously to have their members in Congress declare their existing allegiances to the crown as being no longer relevant, or should I say null and void. The delegates were also, were also allowed to join with other colonies in seeking separation from England. This is important because if you don't give um, that vote of confidence, or let alone the vote, to these delegates in Philadelphia, then how are they going to be able to further pursue 
not just their personal agenda, but pursue ideas that are um, that require co compromising with delegates on in other colonies. There has to be unanimous uh, consent in separation from England because without unanimous consent, as Benjamin Franklin said, we're either going to join together, and if not, we shall all hang separately. As I mentioned from uh, the other night's podcast, that um, all of these men in Philadelphia, they were putting their lives in harm's way. They knew that they ran the risk of... Um, of not even coming home alive. That's how serious the matter was. So what two committees did uh, the Virginia Convention create after declaring its official independence from England? A Declaration of Rights and a Plan of Government. Which delegate took the lead in writing the Virginia Declaration of Rights? His name was George Mason of Fairfax. Now, we all know there's a college, or let alone a university in Fairfax County, Virginia, called George Mason University, named after this um, great Virginian um, whose name is none other than George Mason. But how ironic that James Madison himself would be a member of this committee that helped, um, that was involved with the Declaration of Rights and a plan of government. This is James Madison's way of making it um, not so much big time, but, but laying a foundation for what would become his uh, political um, success, not just at the current moment, but for down the road. So what areas of concern did the Virginia Declaration of Rights focus heavily on? Fundamental rights ranging from that men were entitled to being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, when I think of pursuit of happiness, I think of um, not being um, subjected to a tyrannical form of government that um, did not welcome everyone from all, not just so much from all ranks of society, but did not... Um, cater to uh, the subjects from overseas being in colonial America. In other words, remember, folks, we were not properly represented, and that's why we had those, uh, what do you call it, mass protests involving taxation without representation. So when I think of pursuit of happiness, I think of knowing that I'm not um, being subjected to a tyrant who lives 3,000 miles away who is allowing um, his governmental institution, uh, being that of Parliament, who makes these laws to pass the, the laws, but in a manner that is um, unconstitutional, that um, isn't allowing for uh, equal representation. It's one thing to impose a tax, but if you don't do it, but if you do it without the consent of, the, of those whom are governed below, then that to me is not fair and proper representation. Then there are the government safeguards, or the government, um, the fundamental um, elements to to making sure that government functions right, like separation of powers. You know, you don't want to have one branch of government overpowering the other. To the right to a trial by jury. You know, it's one thing in this in that day and time to go 
to be on trial, it was one thing if a judge, if an individual judge reached a verdict, but wouldn't you want to have a trial by an actual jury, that is a jury of 12 men, even if you were found guilty, you still had the benefit of knowing that there was a, a, a greater consensus of men deliberating your outcome rather than vesting all the power in one person. Then another um, issue that, that raised um, concern uh, to those at the 5th uh, Virginia uh, Convention was the outlawing of cruel and unusual punishments along as well as freedom of the press and the right to worship freely, a.k.a. freedom of religion. You know, many of the um, delegates, you know, wanted independence from England, but if there's one thing they did not want was a complete control of uh, church and state. In other words, in other words, would you want a government being affiliated with one particular religious institution. I wouldn't, because think about it. If your government, if you, if you live, let's say in the state of Virginia, the, 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 the state of Virginia itself was controlled by the Church of England today. That means that, that the governor, whatever decisions the governor and the legislative branch made, they would have to get the the uh, consent of the Church of England. They would almost have to seek the approval. So in other words, if you want to make a decision on something, that's fine. But the church should not be interfering with governmental affairs. And the government should not be interfering with what decisions the church itself makes. So in other words, church and state need to be independent from one another. And for a long time in Virginia, for about 170 years, um, from the time Jamestown was established up until about 1778, the Church of England um, was the most predominant influence in the colony of Virginia. It wasn't until 1778 that, that uh, paying taxes to the Church of England in Virginia was finally abolished. So here's a good bonus question for you. Which Virginia delegate in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on June 7th of 1776, made the motion requesting Congress to declare the colonies, quote-unquote, free and independent states? His name was Richard Henry Lee. And yes, it's that famous Lee family of Virginia that would produce... Uh, a famous uh, Virginian uh, years down the road named Robert Edward Lee. So it is that same line of Lee family members. The Lees have been around in Virginia for a number of years, even before um, the Declaration of Independence was signed. So Richard Henry Lee is the first um, to make the motion to request Congress to declare the colonies free and independent states. And by declaring the colonies free and independent, Richard Lee was emphasizing that any existing ties to the mother country, being England, were to be dissolved once and for all. And on June 29th of 1776, the Virginia Convention writes up a constitution listing all offenses by the crown against the colonies, severing all bonds with England. So you see, folks, here's a pattern. 
Richard Henry Lee is the first to declare the colonies free and independent states. Now the Virginia Convention is writing up its own version of what we might think of as a modern-day constitution, uh, listing all the offenses by the crown, or shall I say a declara- their version of a declaration of independence. The bottom line is, is that, hey, Look at this. Look at it this way, folks. Virginia is the most pop, is the largest of the thirteen colonies. Here's a great example of where she's taking the lead, and the best part is, is that all the other colonies are going to be in agreement with her. Now, on July second of 1776, 1776, the Second Continental Congress, with a unanimous vote, declares the colonies free and independent. Now, I know many of you are out there are wondering, well, didn't that happen on July 4th? Well, you know, we've all been told for years that everything just happened on the 4th of July, but the answer is no. It turns out that on the 4th of July that the Declaration of Independence is officially adopted. So, in other words, on the 2nd, we have voted uh, with a unanimous um, with a unanimous decision to declare uh, all 13 colonies free and independent. Now we've got to uh, look over the document one last time just to make sure that the wording is right and that, and that um, everything is a go. Because I will tell you this right now, there were 86 revisions to the Declaration of Independence before final approval on July 4th. Can you imagine what a nervous wreck Thomas Jefferson must have been? 86 revisions. But he got through it. How so? Well, he got through it because he had men like John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman, and Robert Livingston, that infamous or that famous Committee of Five. They were the ones that came together to draft the document establishing our Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson didn't do all this by himself. But it's interesting to note that John Adams was the one who wanted Jefferson to write the document because he was very impressed with Jefferson's writing skills. And Adams believed that a Virginian should be the one to write the document. And I think this is a great example here of not just bipartisanship, but... Uh, Virginia being the largest of the 13 colonies, and as I've said many of times before, she has a lot to gain, but a lot to lose. But in this case, she has a lot to gain. So why not send someone, why not give that power to someone from the largest of the 13 colonies to, uh, to be the chief author of this document? But remember, one person alone couldn't have done all this work. But Thank heavens Jefferson did have the other men to look over his um, writings to ensure that, hey, we got this right in terms of how we uh, worded it. And remember this too, folks. Even when Jefferson wrote the, the Declaration, there were, there were those who um, did not like certain things. And, you know, Jefferson uh, did mention some things about doing away with slavery, and the South Carolina delegation told him that if he kept the, that context in the document, that they could not go along. The reason for it was because um, 
as the reason for it is because South Carolina was so heavily dependent upon that institution that uh, it was their livelihood. So Jefferson omitted whatever he had, um, whatever he had um, vehemently um, opposed about the practice in order to, um, in order to, um, I don't know if I'd say appease is the right word, but in order to, um, to make amends with the South Carolina, South Carolina delegates. But I also find it interesting to note, too, that uh, Thomas Jefferson himself wasn't even supposed to have been uh, sent as a delegate to this uh, Continental Congress. Peyton Randolph had stepped down to return to Williamsburg. So, hey, a little piece of history goes a long way knowing that, hey, if Jefferson had not been invited to come to Pennsylvania, I don't know who would have taken the chief lead in writing the document. I, I think Roger Sherman would have done a great job. I believe that uh, John Adams might have too, but hey, I think Thomas Jefferson was the right person in, uh, to um, write this document. After all, uh, not to get too far ahead, but as all of us ought to know, that uh, one of the three things that he is uh, most famous for that is mentioned on his gravestone is the author of the Declaration of Independence. So accomplishments like that do go a long way. Now, uh, here's a good bonus question for us. Uh, what were some examples of complaints listed in the Declaration of Independence against King George III? Uh, there are a variety of, there are a multitude of answers, but I can name a, a couple of, of uh, answers for you all. Uh, one of them is uh, keeping a standing army present in times of peace without consent from legislatures. Others ranged from uh, quartering bodies of troops whom were stationed in people's homes without proper consent to cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, imposing taxes without consent, taxation without representation, to depriving individuals of a trial by jury. Those are just a few of the many grievances that were um, mentioned in the actual document. But some of these grievances do go a long way. While James Madison was in Virginia helping out with the efforts to ensure total separation from England, where was James Monroe stationed? Well, James Monroe, as we all know, was part of the 3rd Regiment, or the 3rd Virginia Regiment, rather, well, in August of 1776, he was sent to Long Island, New York, to join George Washington's forces. And it was the first time he, was, he ever went outside of Virginia. You know, folks, remember in this day and age, it was a luxury to travel outside of where you, um, outside of where you uh, lived. Because most people would have gone out of their... Um, hometown maybe 10 or 20 miles at best in their lifetime but to go from Virginia to New York in the case of James Monroe being a soldier that was a big deal we also have to remember too that in 1776 just before 1776 only one major battle had been fought in Virginia I don't know if I'd say it was a major one but I did mention it from the previous night's podcast the battle at Great Bridge down in the Chesapeake Tidewater area so 
if no other battles or any other major conflict is going on in Virginia battle-wise, you're going to be sent where the fighting is taking place. And by 1776, after the Declaration of Independence has been signed, the, the shift in warfare has gone from Boston now to New York. Back in March of 1776, that is March 17th, the British have finally evacuated Boston, now to, on to New York. Now on August 27th of 1776, the Battle of Long Island, or what's known as Brooklyn Heights, takes place. It is the first major battle that takes place after declaring independence from England. The British would defeat General Washington and his forces very badly to where the Port of New York would be in British control till war's end. And James Monroe and the 3rd Regiment would arrive shortly after this battle. Now here's a good true or false question for you all. Did the Americans have any success against British troop forces in New York? True, but the successes that came about resulted in keeping the flames for independence alive by a thread. So, you know, it's one thing to have had a, a defeat, uh, to have had a victory in battle, but just because you had a victory, it didn't always mean that it was a um, home run out of the park. I can give you all a good example here of a battle that in New York that did result in an American victory that did uh, boost some form of morale. It was a battle known as um, Harlem Heights. And of course, when I think of Harlem, I always think of Harlem, New York. But uh, the Battle of Harlem Heights was um, a battle where Patriot forces held multiple areas of high ground terrain in upper Manhattan with forces numbering around 9,000 men strong, led by Generals George Washington and Major Generals Nathaniel Green and Israel Putnam. They squared away against 5,000 British troops under General Henry Clinton. What, what enabled uh, the American forces to win in this battle was that the British troops had advanced too far from their lines and exposed themselves to a counterattack. The Virginia 3rd Regiment, which James Monroe belonged to, was sent to Harlem Heights to ward off the British advancements under Colonel Thomas Knowlton, who would lose his life in combat, and Monroe's group became known as the Knowlton's Rangers, which would become America's first organized intelligence service organization. You might as well have thought of these of this organization as like the equivalent of a Green Beret team or a Navy SEAL, or uh, special ops forces from CIA, um, from the CIA, for example. The bottom line is these men got the job done, and members of this regiment were awarded the highest possible commendation by George Washington. And James Monroe greatly admired George Washington for his uh, heroic leadership, who didn't? And, you know, it's one thing to maybe question someone for, say, a, uh, an approach that maybe didn't go right. But when you're out on the battlefield, you can't question everything all the time. You just got to go with your gut instinct. 
But yes, James Monroe greatly admired George Washington for his heroic leadership, and he was always seeking out men whom were greatly experienced when it came to leadership. I think it's fair to say this because James Monroe lost both of his parents at 16, at age 16, and he did see um, his father, Spence Monroe, demonstrate great, um, leader, great courage when it came to uh, leadership. So James Monroe was, lack, was trying to um, find those right male figures. I think he saw it with his own uncle who um, gave him the strength that he needed to be able to take his, to further his studies and going to William and Mary. But he was looking for it on the battlefield. The Battle of Harlem Heights did mark an American victory, but it was sadly it was erased all too soon with defeats that followed, which resulted in full-scale retreat across the Delaware River into New Jersey. So I can tell you this much, folks. When the British arrived to New York, they brought the whole nine yards with them. They brought hundreds and hundreds of ships with soldiers coming in. They wanted to send a message to the Americans that, hey, you all may have uh, killed more of our men at Bunker Hill in Massachusetts, but we're going to make up for it. You, you, we may have left Boston, where we were hated by all of those uh, Whigs or, in, in some instances, Yankees, but we're going to make up for it in New York because uh, we're bringing the whole nine yards in and we're going to show you what we really have in store. And George Washington at one point saw men retreating, men from his own army retreating left and right because they were scared out of their wits. For many of these men, I don't think they had ever even known what uh, warfare was like. But when they were... Um, Retreating, Washington grabbed some of them and screamed, gave them an earful and told them to go back and fight, but yet they were too scared. Finally, Washington said something to this um, caliber. Are these the men that God spared me to fight the mightiest empire in the world? In other words, Washington was convinced that all of his men would have had enough courage and determination to fight the mightiest empire. While he had many who did, he also had a fair number who were not prepared. And it wasn't because they didn't choose to be prepared, it was because they didn't, they had never had any experience before. They had never gone off to England, or not so much gone off to England, they had never, um, they had not probably fought in the French and Indian War. They were used to going out to hunt in the battle, hunt in the uh, woods to um, to kill um, wild game for dinners. They weren't, or to um, to protect their families if an intruder encroached upon their property. But they, but many of these men did not um, know what it was like to be able to go up against the mightiest empire in the world. So. We are now here at the latter point of 1776, nearing the end. And I hate to say this, folks, but now at this point, the Continental Army is on the brink of collapse towards, um, towards becoming completely extinguished. In other words, if the Continental Army collapses, 
all hopes for uh, independence will no longer have a chance um, to become um, realistic. And if that's the case, what about the Declaration of Independence? Well, you know, it's one thing for all for all uh, 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence to have signed this document. But how can a document have any true meaning if you haven't been able to achieve a significant victory on the battlefield? So now George Washington has to think to himself, hey, here we are in the midst of winter, or winter is approaching. This is a time where military forces are resting to get ready for spring. But the Continental Army only has 2,400 men. And the barrage of defeats in New York have diminished all the confidence, along with that true meaning behind the Declaration of Independence. But enlistment for a handful of soldiers will expire at year's end. So... You know, remember, folks, this isn't the National Guard here. It's not like uh, one group of soldiers is leaving while another is coming to take their place. This is a do-or-die situation. Now, I did read a book a couple years ago called George Washington's Surprise Attack, and this was the Battle of Trenton that would ultimately restore morale and all the hopes and... um, flames of keeping independence alive. George Washington uh, knew that, um, that if he didn't uh, do something before the end of 1776, that, um, that all um, chances of um, being able to keep a continental army alive were um, going to um, evaporate. So what I do know about the Battle of Trenton is that um, an informant um, who had been um, a one-time uh, British sympathizer or a loyalist sympathizer came before came to George Washington and said, "Hey, I know the of the exact place where you and your men can launch a surprise attack on the enemy, and it is none other than Trenton. And who is it, Trenton?" Is it um, the British forces or is it um, mercenaries that are known as Hessians? The answer is Hessians. Who are the Hessians? Well, I'm going to tell you all that right now. The Hessians are related to uh, the British. King George III's wife is uh, Queen Charlotte of Mecklenburg, Mecklenburg, Germany. And the Germans have hired out Hessian soldiers who are um, who are some of the um, what do you call it well-to-do um, troops who have the same caliber as uh, British in terms of their discipline and in terms of service and integrity uh, to their uh, country. So the Hessians are the Hessians have no respect for the Americans. They basically view the American troops as cowards as, what do you call it, peasants with pitchforks, uh, rabble. They have no, what do you call it, self-esteem. Basically, they really are are not, um, they're not feared nor respected. So the Hessians are camped out in Trenton. So what do you know? Um, The Hessians 
who are led by a colonel named Johann Rahl, end up receiving multiple warnings about a possible attack by the um, by the American forces. But every time warnings get sent, Colonel Johann Rahl and his superiors scoff at the messages being sent. Their responses are usually the following. These men are cowards. They're a bunch of wimps. They don't even know how to line up to fire. All, whenever they see the enemy, they run like there's no tomorrow. Well, somehow times are changing and somehow a different um, somehow new measures are coming into play to where hey you might want to think twice before um, before assuming anything well I will tell you this um, George Washington led his men on um, on a ride over the Delaware River and I will tell you this folks it was no picnic ride o- along the Delaware River it was freezing cold it was ice-covered water. It took about eight to nine hours for everybody to make it over. In other words, um, the men who were leading the boat ride over were from Marblehead, Massachusetts. They were um, the most skilled navigators in navigating the Delaware River. Not just the Delaware River, but um, but ice, but rivers that were um, that were covered with ice. These men had seen it all because they had been they had helped um, lead George Washington and his uh, men and, and his troops in New York to safety. So I, I will tell you this: it yes, it took about eight to nine hours to get across the Delaware River, but but most of the men made made it over. There were some who didn't, but a handful of them did. And there would be a 10-mile march after crossing the river to Trenton. It would be one of the most grueling marches in the snow. And remember, folks, too, that most of these 2,400 men did not even have proper clothing. Some of them, a lot of them had shoes that were not even protecting their their feet. These were men wearing ragtag clothes, but here they were risking their lives to ensure that the flames of liberty would still be there. And James Monroe was a part of the secretive operation plot. There is a famous picture of George Washington crossing the Delaware River. He's on a boat. He's standing up, tall and mighty. Some have speculated that there's no way possible that he could have been standing up the entire time. I'm not really sure what is true, but what I can tell you this. If he was standing up, it was because he wanted to send a message to everyone else on the other boats that, hey, look, no matter what the conditions are, no matter what stakes may present before us, we are going to find a way to prevail because if not, then we will have nothing else to to live for. And how true this will uh, prove to be, because uh, it also turns out that James Monroe was on that same boat holding the American flag. So James Monroe, what, how did Monroe contribute is what my question ought to be. Well, he was in a party of 50 men led by George Washington's cousin, Captain William Washington. 
Once the party landed on shore after crossing the Delaware River, they went about securing a main road linking Trenton to Princeton and preventing British forces throughout New Jersey from knowing about the attack. Here's another step or another way in how our forces outsmarted the most brilliant of military forces being the Hessians. Did the Hessians have anything really lined up to protect themselves? Not really. They didn't have cannons lined up in all different um, angles. And I can tell you this much. In Trenton, at the time, there was only one way in and one way out. So if you only have one way in and one way out, then you don't really have a very well-fortified um, city. Because... You know, yes, if you have one way in and one way out, it doesn't automatically mean that you are um, truly protected. So, the group that James Monroe was a part of also secured control of another key street entryway into town. Well, that's two for two right there. And here the Hessians are having dinner, laughing away, just, um, you know, partying like it's, just partying like like nothing's wrong. We've got everything. The only problem is that for the Hessians, here's a, here's the flip side to it all. The Hessians have actually sent messages to the British back in London demanding that there be some more uh, troops present because they know this current unit, their um, enlistment is about to expire and they're getting ready to head back home. So they need some reinforcements. Do these reinforcements come? No. But they've sent messages out in enough time, but the British ignore them because they feel as though, hey, the Hessians can take care of everything. We've given them enough ammunition. And as for the Americans, they're depleted. They're um, running around like chickens with their head cut off trying to cross the side of the road. So I think this is a good example here of where ignorance is going to get not only the better of the British, but also the better of the Hessians. It's going to get the better of them both. Well, on January 20, on December 26th of 1776, in the early morning hours, the Continental Army attacked Trenton and ambushed Hessian troops, capturing nearly a thousand men while sustaining minimal losses. Now, I can't imagine what fury was unleashed on the Hessians, but I can tell you this much, folks. Cannons were positioned at every angle, north, south, east, and west, to the point where once the cannon shots were launched and the troops made their way on the... Um, what do you call it, on the fortifications of Trenton, that whatever hit the Hessians, they just did not know what, hit, what, what, what struck. They were, they were just so blown away. Many of these troops were still in their um, beds. Many of them had not even gotten out in enough time to get ready for what was ahead. Um, by the time they got out, a handful of them had surrendered, some were shot. The bottom line is they just did not have the uh, sense. They did not have that sense of urgency, 
And who can you blame it on? Well, you can blame it on the British, but you can also blame it on their colonel or their leader, Colonel Johann Rall. He literally was naive the whole time. You would have thought after multiple warnings that he would have finally sensed urgency and said, hey, send, send, send X number of men uh, out to where we can, um, we can launch a counterattack or launch an ambush on Washington and his men. Did it happen? No. I guess there's an old saying right here. Sometimes you get what you deserve for being ignorant. Well, given that James Monroe was a part of this uh, expedition, was he shot by Hessian forces? Yes. But he would recover from his wounds in the aftermath of the battle, and because of his heroic actions, he would be promoted from lieutenant to captain. I tell you this, if this battle had not taken place at Trenton, the revolution, the American Revolutionary War itself would have ended. All hopes for independence would have just uh, been extinguished. And I will tell you this, in, in the days after uh, the battle at uh, Trenton, there would be another battle being the Battle of Princeton, where the Americans would score another big victory. Two victories, one at the end of 1776 and the start of 1777, in the days after January 1st of that new year, the Americans were on a roll. Not, only, not just on a roll in the battlefield, but on, on a roll with restoring morale. People finally had something good to feel about, but they also knew that the Declaration of Independence finally had significant meaning. It's one thing to draft a document and for it to be approved as a document that officially declares your separation from England. But there again, if, if you have not scored any major victories on a battlefield, then the, de then the Declaration of Independence itself would not have any true meaning. But now that you've got back-to-back -back victories... Re-enlistments re will emerge. New enlistments will take place. George Washington has hope. And when you have hope, you know that um, potential for um, future victories is, uh, is possible. However, even with these victories, there are still going to be challenges. Challenges that are both good and bad but challenges that will still keep the um, flames of independence on pins and needles. So what was the largest city in America during the Revolutionary War? The answer is Philadelphia. And it was the current capital at the time during, leading up to the battles of Trenton and Princeton. But the British would capture Philadelphia during the Battle of Brandywine in 1777, and it would force um, the relocation of the capital um, to towns west of Philadelphia, being York and Lancaster. York and Lancaster are outside of what we now know as the present-day capital of Pennsylvania, being Harrisburg. Now, um, to wrap up the uh, podcast here tonight, what battle in October of 1777 would mark a crucial turning point that would enable another foreign country to join us
in um, wanting to wage war with England. The battle itself would be um, Saratoga Springs in October of 1777. American forces led by Benedict Arnold and Horatio Gates. And I tell you that Horatio Gates is a very uh, complex character. If you want to know more about him, um, you should watch uh, some documentaries about the Battle of Saratoga because uh, it, this is a whole other topic for another time, but uh, he really, um, he really um, pushed Benedict Arnold around to the point where Gates ended up getting more credit than he really had deserved when it was Arnold himself that really won the battle for the um, American forces. But the bottom line is the job got done and British forces under General John Burgoyne were defeated and the victory at Saratoga had con convinced the French to enter the war on the American side. Remember, folks, when the British defeated the French in the French and Indian War, the British took over all the territory that the French controlled. So if you were the French, wouldn't you want to get back at England? Absolutely. So the French involvement meant an experienced army along with a broad stream of financing to, to curtailing British naval supremacy. So who do we have to thank for finally getting the French to join uh, the Americans? You know, the French j didn't uh, call us up and say, hey, we want to join you. We have Benjamin Franklin to thank. Um, he really was the one that um, was able to persuade the French to join us. After the Declaration of Independence was signed, he went to France and remember, folks, this is three months after we have after we've declared our independence. But if it weren't for Benjamin Franklin, I'm not sure who would have been the right person to have helped persuade the French on our side in America, that is, to join us. So, you know, we have seen the work, we've seen the lowest of lows, and now we have seen the highest of highs. But the revolution itself is still far from being over. But Madison and Monroe have made some significant strides. And they are going to continue to make significant strides as we will um, learn more in our next uh, podcast session here. And I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Thank you and have a good rest of your evening. Take care.